One of my favorite classes in college was Jesus and the Gospels. Ironically, though, one of my strongest memories from that class was not planned by the professor on the syllabus. During a series of student presentations toward the end of the semester, one student's presentation started by denouncing everything we had learned that semester as heretical and concluded by quoting Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, the professor was visibly disturbed by this presentation and sort of threw out of it, and you could sort of see her clenching the sides of the desk and grimacing and trying to control herself, uh, and in the end did so fairly admirably. She said with a calm sternness, get out. (laughs) You have clearly learned nothing. Please leave the room now. From the perspective of Orthodox Christianity, though, the student was right. We had been learning heresy. But the root of that word heresy simply means to choose. A heretic is simply one who chooses for him or herself rather than listening simply to what an authority figure says. Another strong memory from that class that was a paradigm shift for me in understanding the Christian tradition was a quote from the historical Jesus scholar John Dominic Crossan, who said that the issue is whether the passion accounts, so the the passion accounts from that Latin root word passio, meaning suffering, so the passion accounts are the accounts of Jesus' suffering and death. The issue is whether the passion accounts are prophecy historicized or history remembered. Crossan continued that Raymond Brown, who's an orthodox, uh, an excellent but an orthodox Roman Catholic uh, historical Jesus scholar, is 80% in the direction that the Gospels, the Hashan accounts, are history remembered, and 20% sort of coming from tradition. Crossan says, I'm 80% in the opposite direction. Those statistics are in line with the headline-grabbing press releases from the Jesus Seminar in the 1990s that only about 20% of the words attributed to the historical Jesus were actually said by him. My classmate, in contrast, was making a stronger argument even than Raymond Brown that Jesus said and did 100% of what the Bible says, that the Christian scriptures are 100% history remembered. But the more I've researched for myself, the more convinced I am of Crossan's perspective that the Gospels are, for the most part, prophecy historicized. In other words, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John evolved from decades of ancient Christians reading what for them was their Bible. So when Jesus was writing the Bible, living, the Bible didn't exist yet, right? Jesus didn't talk about the law and the prophets. During Jesus' lifetime, even what is now known as the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament was still in formation, but two-thirds of it were set, the, the Torah and the prophets. That, so that as early Christians, early Jesus followers were reflecting on Jesus' life and death. They were reading the Torah and the prophet. They were telling and retelling oral history, and they wove those ingredients together into the historical accounts. That's what he means by prophecy historicized. If you're interested in exploring further, the best starting point I've found is Crossan's book, Who Killed Jesus? 
But when seeking to separate out history remembered from prophecy historicized in the quest for the historical Jesus, one detail that I can't emphasize strongly enough is the importance of keeping in mind that Jesus of Nazareth was a peasant from an obscure backwater village. He was not royalty for whom we have a decent amount of records. Rather, we, don't, we only know within a few years of estimating you know, the year in which Jesus was born. We know kind of a few years either way, 4 to 6 BCE. And we know within a few years either way of when he died, 27 to 30 CE. Now, we know the time of year that he died. He died during Passover, and that uh, is part of what triggered his arrest and execution. But we don't know the year. Moreover, there is a 40-year gap between Jesus' death and the writings of the first, the earliest gospel, the Gospel of Mark. So Jesus died around 27 to 30. The Gospel of Mark is written around 70. Keep in mind, so think about something that happened in 1930 not being written about until 1970 as a parallel. Keep in mind as well that Jesus and his disciples were lower-class, illiterate um, peasants who spoke Aramaic, and the, whereas the Gospels were written in Greek by highly educated Greek-speaking Christians 40 to 65 years later. So Mark in 70, Matthew and Luke around 80, and John 90 or later. And being able to write a text like the Gospels was a rare talent in that time. Approximately 97% of people in Palestine in Jesus' day could neither read nor write. And of that 3%, more could read than write. And among that even smaller percentage that could write, more could copy or compose, more could copy than could actually compose or do small calculations rather than be able to compose something on the level of the Gospels. So regarding that 40-year gap between the life of the historical Jesus and the earliest written record, two of the biggest myths that need to be debunked are that the Gospels are eyewitness accounts, and two, that people in oral cultures have better memories than we do today. First, the Gospels are, have anybody heard those myths? I heard them growing up. Okay, they're out there. Uh, first, the Gospels are almost entirely written in the third person. Two of them start in the first person, but then quickly switch to the third person. So they start by talking about themselves, but then switch to the third person when talking about Jesus. And they don't in anywhere claim to be written in the first person by eyewitnesses. Second, the consensus among both anthropologists and cultural historians is that people in oral cultures generally forget as much as people have always forgotten. Indeed, rather than having better memories, the situation is far more dire. If something is forgotten in an oral culture, it is lost forever, whereas we, in a written culture, can Google it or look it up in the library previously. Now, along those lines, there's a lot to be learned about the quest for the historical Jesus from parallel situations, such as the quest for the historical Homer. In literature. The most important book in this regard is Albert Lord's 1960 classic, The Singer of Tales. That's an accessible book that you may also appreciate reading at some point. What that book uh, documents is that oral cultures, uh, that in any oral context, every time a story is told, it is changed. The gist may remain pretty much the same, but the details get changed and they also often get changed massively. The real paradigm shift from an oral culture to a written culture is not that people's memories are superior in an oral culture. Rather, in an oral culture, the relationship to tradition is different because there is no written record to compare any given performance to.
Researchers who have made transcripts of oral cultures over time have demonstrated that every performance is and always has been different. Whoever performs the tradition alters it at least slightly in light of his or her own interests, the sense of what the audience wants to hear, the available time to tell or sing a story, and numerous other factors. That being said, if you were to ask a performer in an oral culture if the song is the same or is the story the same over time, many would insistently say, yes, of course they are. But what they're really meaning is that the gist of the song, the gist of the story is the same because studies have exposed time and time again that word choice and overall length vary widely from performance to performance. This dynamic would also have been the case with Jesus' teachings, which would have varied in the details. Think about the stump speeches of politicians, that the gist is often the same, but the details vary, whether they're speaking in Delaware or Colorado to a labor union or to you know, environmental activists or to the 1% at a fundraiser. These variances would also have been the case as stories about Jesus were passed from person to person during the 40-year gap between his life and the earliest gospel. So when you hear that the historical Jesus only said about 20% of the words attributed to him by the gospels, part of what's underneath that claim is the insight that the gist that remained most constant is often the punchline, but then the details got changed. So um, what people might remember is turn the other cheek. What people might remember that really goes back to Jesus is quotes like the human con- that's, the Sabbath is created for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. But the details that got varied were the circumstances of the conflict over Sabbath observance. Or the Good Samaritan. The gist of that story, the overall arc, probably stayed the same, but the length of it would have varied. Whether it was the Jericho Road or another road would have varied depending on the circumstances and the time in which Jesus had to tell it. Consider this parallel um, parable from the theologian Catherine Keller. She writes, A man died. The people knew him gathered to share memories. Finally, a portrait was commissioned, but as generations passed, the painting just didn't seem fine enough. The heirs of the portrait, who had now become wealthy, created a new golden frame for the painting. It was immense. It was carved with motifs from the portrait and encrusted with jewels. People began to feel that that portrait of that dark fellow with the haunting eyes, that kind of just pulled the effect down. And as it began to peel from age, they just kept extending the frame inward until one day the frame covered the whole canvas. The quest for the historical Jesus requires carefully stripping away the frame that has expanded over the millennia. In reflecting how we should approach that process, the historical Jesus scholar Bart Ehrman has published an important new book titled Jesus Before the Gospels, how the earliest Christians remembered, changed, and invented stories about Jesus. The most significant contribution of this book is applying what we have learned from 21st century neuroscience to the quest for the historical Jesus. Ehrman's goal is to separate out what we might wish we had, an accurate eyewitness account uh, reflecting 100% history remembered about the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth, from what we do have, written uh, written records from decades after the fact that reflect 
somewhere around 80% prophecy historicized. Perhaps the most damning way in which modern science challenges the accuracy of history remembered is that even if the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses, which they don't claim to be, it's devastating to discover in our own age that in criminal cases whose convictions have been overturned by DNA evidence, in about 75% of those cases of reversed judgments, Uh, the person charged with the crime had been convicted solely on the basis of eyewitness testimony. Sometimes that may have been because the eyewitness lied and committed perjury to get a conviction. It's also likely that some of those cases were simply people misseeing, misexperiencing some of the details, misremembering about the event, even though they witnessed it firsthand. Consider just three more examples of how memory actually works versus how we might wish memory worked. Though sometimes it's nice to forget and we wish we could forget. First, in 1902, a criminologist named Franz von Liszt staged a fight at one of his popular lectures in which two students faked an argument that escalated until one of them pulled a gun out and fired it. A fairly memorable event. After revealing that it had all been an act, Professor List assigned a group of students to record what they had witnessed. Then another group of students who weren't told this was going to be the case were pulled aside and the next day asked to record what they remembered. And then a final group of students were pulled aside a week later and asked to say what they remembered. The most accurate accounts were an error of 26% of the details. Others were in error for as many as 80% of the details. This experiment was one of the earliest scientific tests of whether eyewitness testimony could be believed and or how accurate it was. Here's a second example. When the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded in 1986, two psychologists at Emory University had the idea of administering a short seven-question survey to 106 psychology undergraduates at Emory. They asked them where they were, when they heard the news, what time of day it was, what they were doing at the time, whom they had learned it from, etc. A year and a half later, they were able to get 44 of the students to take the same seven-question survey. Another six months after that, they interviewed 40 of the original 106. 75% of those who took the second questionnaire, you know, a year and a half later, were certain they had never taken the first one. That is obviously wrong. 25% of the participants got every single answer wrong on the second questionnaire, even though their memories were vivid and they were highly confident of their answers. Another 50% got only two of the seven questions correct. Only three of the 44 got all seven answers right the second time, and even in those cases, some of the details were incorrect. When the participants' confidence in their answers was ranked in relationship to their answers' accuracy, there was zero correlation between confidence and accuracy in 42 of the 44 instances. When confronted with evidence of what really took place, they consistently denied it and said that their present memories were the correct ones. In the words of the researchers, no one who had given an incorrect answers in the interview even pretended that they now recalled what was stated in the original record. As far as we can tell, the original memories were just gone. 
These findings, which have been replicated in other studies, are significant both for understanding our own memories, own memories somewhat troublingly, as well as how Jesus and other famous figures were and are remembered. I mean, you can look historically at how Lincoln and how he was remembered has shifted dramatically from age to age. You can look at how George W. Bush was remembered at different points in his presidency, how he is remembered now. You can look at how th- things shift over time and how people are remembered. Among many other significant scientific studies of memory, here's a third and final example from a study called, Do You Remember Proposing to the Pepsi Machine? Psychologists psychologists at Wesleyan University took 40 students to different locations around campus, and in each location they were asked to do one of four things, either to perform an action, to imagine performing that action for 10 seconds, to watch an experimenter performing an action, or to imagine an experimenter performing an action. The actions were either normal or bizarre. For example, if they were in the library, some of them were asked to look up a word in the dictionary. Some of them were asked to pat the dictionary and ask, how are you doing, dictionary? Elsewhere, they were asked to, for example, check the Pepsi machine for change. Other were asked to get down on one knee and propose marriage to the Pepsi machine or to imagine someone doing it. When interviewed two weeks later, whether the action was normal or bizarre, participants who had imagined it often remembered doing it. Imagining the action vividly just one time could produce false memories. Moreover, imagining someone else performing an action led to just as as many false memories as imagining doing it oneself. These modern understandings of memory, as it actually is and not as we wish it were, uh, are among the many factors that should be considered in studying and considering how Jesus was remembered, changed, and invented stories about him. As I say each Sunday at the beginning of the service, we seek to encourage spiritual growth by drawing wisdom from all the world's religions balanced with the insights of modern science. The Christian tradition continues to be an important source of wisdom for many contemporary Unitarian Universalists, including myself. But I invite you to consider that the authority of the Christian tradition does not rest solely on whether Jesus of Nazareth did or said something, did or did not do or say something 2,000 years ago. I continue to be interested in that historical investigation, but the more important question I invite you to consider may be whether a saying or action from the Christian tradition or from any source, really, whether it helps lead us to lead lives that are more compassionate, grounded, and generous. If it does, then I'm grateful, whether it came from the historical Jesus or whether it comes from a tradition that was changed or misremembered or misattributed or invented by a later person. May we be grateful for wisdom from whatever source it comes if it leads to an increase of love and joy, of peace and justice. Thank you, choir. I realize that's Handel, but there's a related quote about how many contemporary musicians sometimes relate to the sacred works of Johann Sebastian Bach, and it's that not all musicians believe in God, but they all believe in Bach.
Let's uh, share with you one final uh, thought that uh, when developmental psychologists look sort of in broad brush strokes of what does the journey to maturity look like, the journey to authentic adulthood, to fully becoming a human being, what does that look like? That in broad brush strokes, it looks like the move from dependence to independence to interdependence. And you can get stuck at any one of those two preceding stages. And when I think about that in relationship to the Christian tradition, you can think about parallels to maybe your own um, background in childhood, that the uh, original relationship of dependence can come from sort of really needing the, you know, being really disturbed by the Jesus seminar saying that Jesus only said 20% of what's attributed to him. Because if one's ethics, if one's faith, if one's being sort of rests on this authority being true, then it's very disturbing to have that if you're totally dependent on that. And so the next stage can kind of be achieving some sort of independence, some sort of distance, though the danger at that stage can be throwing the baby out with the bathwater can be, you know, saying, all right, well, th- this, there's some untruth here, so we're just going to get rid of all that, and it's just going to be about me. And that can actually, at its worst stage, lead to sort of nihilism, you know, just whatever I think is okay. Uh, and to the, the, so to me, what, what the more mature perspective is one of interdependence, of saying, you know, it's both, and I mean that at least in two ways, of interdependence, both with sort of what we say on Sunday morning, that the uh, that we're seeking to draw wisdom from the world's religions, but to balance that with modern science, that interdependence between the two, but also the inter- interdependence of community, of saying that what I, not just asking at the independent stage what's best for me or what leads to my joy or my peace or my, tr- you know, my generosity, but, but what, what, you know, what's the communal truth, what actually leads to an increase of love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and goodness for, for a community. Uh, to give you just a brief example from the, the Christian tradition that, you know, as people, what people start to realize is things like, you know, re- realizing as you read the Bible for yourself as opposed to just what people tell you, you realize things like, you know, I was speaking some about the Passion accounts. So you start to compare the Passion accounts instead of just reading straight through Matthew, straight through Mark, straight through Luke, straight through John. When you compare uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke to John, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called by scholars the synoptic gospels because they see together. So sin, like synthesis, S-Y-N, optic, like your optician, whereas John is different. When you compare them in parallel instead of just all together reading them in sequence, you see that 90% of the Gospel of John is unique to the Gospel of John, that only 10% of it is shared with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke overlap much more uh, frequently. So like, just to give you one among many examples, when you look at the story of Jesus' death, you see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke with our current Holy Week that we just went through, that Holy Week, Maundy Thursday, is known uh, is when you often come and have communion, and it commemorates the Last Supper, which in the Jewish tradition was Passover. So that before Jesus died on Friday, he gathered with his disciples in an upper room. They had Passover. But if you look in the Gospel of John, you see that Jesus dies. Jesus is crucified on Wednesday. He's crucified on the day that the lambs are being slaughtered to prepare Passover. And that's into the cynical way of saying 
phrasing that would be that John doesn't care about history. The perhaps more charitable way of phrasing it is that John cares more about theology, of making the theological point that for John and for his community, Jesus is the Paschal Lamb who's sacrificed for the sins of the world than he does about history. So he's cared. That's just one of many examples I could give you of prophecy historicized. You know, is it a coincidence that do we really know the words that Jesus said from the cross, which are different depending on which gospel you read, or when you realize that all those words that are put into Jesus' mouth, they all come from Psalm 22, as does much of the passion description. So that's, that's another example of what we mean by prophecy historicized. So that can lead one, it has led many people to just reject the Christian tradition altogether. But I invite you to consider that the, there's also an invitation to have a relationship of interdependence, of taking what is helpful for you today and letting go of the rest in a more gentle and less violent way. So as you continue your journey, continue it with love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.